This is Minister in the Making, a podcast for church people, from the ones who stand in the pulpit every Sunday to the ones who hide on the back pew around Christmas time. The mission of this podcast is to give church people a behind the scenes, inside look at life in Christian ministry. My name is B.T. Irwin, and I'm interviewing your guide, my dad, Travis Irwin, who shares the stories and wisdom he got from 50 years in full-time church work. Now, last time, Dad told us about the day in July 2003 when his body, heart, and mind went into total system failure all at the same time. He walked out of his office and curled up in a ball on a couch in the basement. A few days later, a Christian counselor told him that for the sake of his own health, he had to resign his ministry with the Steel Avenue Church of Christ, a ministry he held for 22 years. Dad disagreed and tried to figure out a way to keep going. By fall, however, Dad knew that he could not go on. On October 3, 2003, he and Mom read a simple resignation letter to the church elders at their Monday night business meeting. And just like that, two decades of ministering together began to come to an end. The one thing about this conversation with dad and mom uh, surprised me. If you listen to any of the other episodes of this podcast, you know that dad lived with an irrational, overwhelming fear of the elders firing him. And it was like this for all 22 years that he was at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. One of my memories as a kid was how uh, anxious and emotional dad would get around elders meetings. So when I asked dad about the day that he knew he was going before the elders to submit his resignation, I thought he would talk about like one of the hardest days of his life, uh, anxiety and worry and stress. But when he described that day and when he described reading his resignation letter, uh, it was empty of any feeling at all, almost mechanical. I asked about that and then mom gave me an explanation that really struck me hard. That comes uh, closer to the end of the conversation. So listen carefully for that. And I also think that some of the insights that came near the end of this conversation are some of the best that I ever heard since we started this podcast. Uh, the saddest thing I ever heard on this podcast is when dad said uh, he would still be in Ashland today, he thinks, if as a minister, he didn't give in to the temptation to measure the wrong things. He said that measuring the wrong things is what did him in at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. What are those wrong things? So listen for that as well near the end of the conversation. It really is some of the best stuff uh, that I've ever heard come out of dad and mom uh, since we started uh, recording this podcast. So I hope this is an episode that all church members take in. And without further delay, this is Minister in the Making, episode number 31, Resignation. Okay, so we're picking up uh, where we left off last time. And uh, where we left off last time is that uh, over the first part of 2003, the year 2003, Dad, you were busy. Uh, with a lot of a lot of things going on with uh, the Steel Avenue Church of Christ, there was a building campaign going on. You were uh, involved in so many ministries. You were doing personal Bible studies with people. You were keeping up with people who were shut in and sick. And you know, you said you 
you just believed in, you know, push, 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 push. You just kept on pushing. And, uh, and then a day came in July, 2003, that all systems just shut down one day, the way you describe it. It's like your body and your brain and everything just stopped. And you actually said it was like driving down the highway and you're cruising along and all of a sudden you run out of gas and the car just stops. And so you had that experience. You went to a counselor pretty soon after that. And the counselor told you that you needed to resign from your, your position with the steel Avenue church of Christ. And, uh, mom said that when you came out of that appointment with the counselor, you looked like a deer in the headlights and it, it must've hit you square between the eyes, but it did not convince you to, to resign. Um, you said, I need a break. I need, you know, I just need a break, kind of get myself right. And then I, I got to keep going. And what really, uh, what really got you to make the decision to, to resign uh, a position that you'd held for 22 years uh, at a church that you loved um, as much as anybody can love a congregation. You went to Loughborough, England for a month in a pulpit exchange. Uh, you preached and taught at a, uh, at a congregation in Loughborough, England and at the British Bible School while the minister from there came to Ashland, Ohio and filled your pulpit. And when it came time to come home to Ashland after your month in Loughborough, you told mom, I don't want to go back. I just, I, I don't want to go back. You couldn't bear the thought of, of coming home. And so the decision was really made at the end of that trip to resign. Um, and so uh, I, I recall that almost as soon as you got back to Ashland, you, you got home on a Sunday in October. Uh, was it the very next day at the elders meeting that, that next, that Monday night that yeah, you, so, yeah. I'd say so. Yes. You went in there jet lagged and, and, uh, and resigned your job. So tell me, uh, tell me about that day. So you got home on Sunday night, you went to church. I, I, I remember this from the scrapbook I read at your house over Thanksgiving you woke up the next morning, or maybe you didn't wake up. Maybe you didn't sleep at all uh, that night. What was that day like leading up to going to the elders meeting? Monday, I think it's Monday, October 3rd or 4th, somewhere in there. Yeah. I don't remember a lot of details. I could tell you that I probably was um, fighting, I, I being pulled in two directions. One was just go ahead and resign. The other one was wait, wait a little bit longer see if there's something else that I can do. But I knew in my heart of hearts, just looking at everything, I, I had to resign. I had to step down. There's, there's, there, there was no, there was no um, escape. There was no way out. I had, I had never, ever thought of going to those elders and saying, I need X amount of time off. I had never thought of that. And I didn't even think of it then because I think they would, I, I thought they would have said no or they would not have given me enough time off and I would not have gotten the help that I needed. But anyway, that Monday, I, probably, wrote a letter. I wrote a letter. I probably typed up that letter that Monday and your mom reads everything that I type up like that. And it was ready to go. 
your mom what, went with me. What was in the letter and how many drafts did you write before you settled on one? <laughs> that's a, well, that's almost 20 years ago. Uh, I don't have a clue. Um, I typed it on a computer and then printed it off. And uh, it was probably on the official church letterhead too. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how many times I wrote it and rewrote it, but your mother always got to read it, read things like that. And she smoothed it out. And um, it wasn't a, a two page letter, it was a one page letter, got right to the point. Just basically, I said, I, this is what's happened. I can't, I can't go on. I'm, I'm done. I'm resigning as of today. Um, 90, day, 90 day contract and that, that would have been january 4th when i walked away maybe we should ask your editor what was in that letter do you remember mom i think he i think he tried to explain kind of what had happened with him um i don't think that burnout was a phrase that or a thing that we knew a whole lot about at that time i don't even know if he used the word burnout um, I think that may have been something that we learned later, but he, he just kind of tried to briefly explain what had happened with him. He was embarrassed about what had happened with him. So he tried to briefly explain it and he did not, he was very careful not to cast any blame in that letter. Even though he felt there was some blame, he did not want to cast any blame. And he wanted to word it to where they couldn't argue with him. He was, hmm. he, he was so, um, just so emotionally fragile that he didn't feel like he could handle uh, arguing or, or um, kind of reason. intense feelings about things. He just wanted to walk in, read the letter and walk out. Hmm. And so he tried to make the letter very clear and yet not clear because he didn't want to really go into what was going on with you. Hmm. That didn't make any sense, I know, but that's really how it was. So you don't remember the exact wording that you chose to explain what was going on? No, don't remember any of it. So when you say that, you did Go ahead. I just basically said I had to resign. That's, yeah. Yeah. So you anticipated that you might get some arguments or or maybe they would try to reason with you or talk he you out of the decision. that they would not accept his resignation that they I would see. say no we don't want you to leave or else on the flip side that they would say leave now yeah yeah um what what arguments did you imagine they would make to change your mind I did not have a clue. <laughs> you know, like maybe offering him more money or, mm -hmm. you know, it's something to entice him to stay. Yeah. Now, did you use the word embarrassed? One of you say, you know, dad or mom, I can't remember which one of you. I thought I heard the word embarrassed. You're a little bit embarrassed yeah. for the reasons for the resignation. Were you more embarrassed that you didn't have what it took to just keep on pushing, 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 or were you more embarrassed that, um, that it had come to the point where you had to, 
you had to resign. Kind of a little bit of both, but especially the first thing you said, I just felt like I should have been able to fix this and I couldn't. And so yeah. I, just had, I just had to step down. He felt somewhat like, like somewhat of a failure mm. and, and very weak. Mm. And he didn't like that. Were you, uh, were you sick that day? Like, no. I know we joke about the Irwin stomach in our family and that our anxiety and emotions sometimes manifest themselves in our, in our bodies. I know what my body feels like when I'm especially anxious about something or tense. So was that a day where you were physically, I mean, for crying out loud, you'd just been on an airplane the day before flying back from England. So how did yeah. you feel physically that day? Probably had a little bit of jet lag, but so far as the stomach issue and all that, I don't think there was a, that was the problem. I, I was nervous, and I just had to, you know, force myself to go through the day and just, you know, keep reassuring myself everything's going to work out, and you've got to step down, you got to step back, mm -hmm. step out, and the, the most nervous time was just walking into that room with the elders mm -hmm. there. That was just that was tough. Did um, one one more question? You said that you did think a little bit that day about you know could there be another way, Dad? That's the first thing you said when I asked the question. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure once you told Mom you were going to do it, you felt like you had to keep your commitment to Mom, and that Mom was going to hold you to that commitment. But I mean what were some of the possibilities that you kept turning over in your head? Well, maybe if we did this, we could make it work. Maybe if we did that, we could make it work. How much serious thought did you give to trying to find a way to avoid designing? Not, a, Not lot. a lot. Okay. Because um, by the, by the time I typed up the letter, I knew I was going to leave. Hmm. I knew there was nothing. I, I couldn't think of any specific possibilities of fixing it fixing the situation so i just kind of figured i've got i've just got to step down i don't want to do it but i've got to for my sanity for the welfare of the church your mother has been very very supportive she's supportive from day one when i started when we started talking about it if i needed to step down i could yeah so that kind of that helped a lot too but i just couldn't think of anything else i've never i've, I've known men who go on sabbaticals but to, in my case, I thought it's too late to go on a sabbatical. Mm. Uh, and I, I had, um, I, I didn't feel like I could ask these men for a sabbatical. So why how, how did you know that a sabbatical wouldn't work? So if a sabbatical were on the table, let's say the elders that night said, well, Travis, what if we give you a, a sabbatical? Um, how did you know that? even if that option was on the table, if you took it, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna work. How do I know it wasn't gonna work? Yeah. Just because I had some bad habits I needed to correct first. Mm. It's kind of like, kind of like a guy with a bad golf swing. You can play golf three or four times a day. If you don't get that golf swing straightened out, you're, you're gonna continue to play bad golf. And so yeah. has some bad habits. Uh, we've talked about them before on this, on this uh, program. And, and ways of thinking, ways of dealing with issues and problems. If I didn't change those first, then I would just go right back into the fire again. Well, yeah. and the other thing is, 
he would have needed a sabbatical of at least a year. Mm-hmm. And they they wouldn't or couldn't have given him one that long. And even yeah. if they had, they wouldn't have been able to pay him for a mm-hmm. year and him mm-hmm. not work. And um, he just knew, I mean, you, you just don't understand how fragile he was at that point. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, he just, he just, he, if he had tried to back out of that, I would not have allowed it because I knew he was at the breaking point. Yeah. Which and is why you went with him to the meeting. That's why I went with him to the meeting. Partly, <laughs> partly, mostly I went as moral support. Mm. Okay. I also went just in case something happened yeah with the elders yeah you know and so i mean he was just very very fragile at Mm. that point who other than the two of you knew that this was coming uh nobody 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 yeah so nobody Nobody. when, when the elders when you walked in to the elders meeting that night and mom came with you um were was your resignation item one on the agenda did you did you say i'd like the floor at the start of the meeting or did you have to sit through a meeting before you got to hey they knew we were coming they would yeah we were were coming so we were first on the agenda then we left and did they did they kind of have a an inkling that that your resignation could be coming i mean did did it, did it catch the elders off guard completely? Were they shocked by your resignation? Or did you perceive that they weren't too surprised? Well, what little bit I remember is that I think they were pretty much surprised. I think they were very surprised. Yeah. What so set the set the scene. Where um where did the elders meeting take place? Well, we did uh the eldership grew a little bit, so we had to have a little bit bigger room, and so the elders had to have a little bit bigger room. And they met, met in one of the wings off the auditorium. Okay. If you face the pulpit, it's one off to the left. Okay. Um, right around a table. I know the I know the wing. People that went to that church building know that wing too. So uh, you came with mom, and uh, you read the resignation letter to them, right. word for word. Uh, either I did or your mom did. No, did. I read it, yeah. yeah. Real slow, yeah. And uh, after you finished reading the letter, what happened next? Well, there was just a, really, just a period of silence there. And and I wanted to say more, but I told myself, don't say anything more. Hmm. You said all you're going to say. And then uh, um, the only, the only, the only, I remember one of the elders responding he's the only one i remember responding at the time well there's two now come to think of another one of them said um what what else what can we do to change your mind or what can we do to help you and i said nothing i'm done it's over it's done mm-hmm. then another one you know said you just you just don't love the people here and basically that, that of course that's not true but I had, I had come to love the people more than I loved myself or loved my own wife, my own children to the detriment uh, that we're talking about today. Mm. 
So mom, is that what you remember? I remember, I remember some pretty shock silence hmm. for a couple of, a couple of minutes. And then I do remember one of the elders speaking up and saying he was really sorry and wanting to know if there was anything that they could do to help. And your dad said no. And I think they all expressed a little sorrow. There's one I can think of that was angry, but he yeah. didn't express it. Mm. And um, and then we left. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, basically went in. Your dad took care of business and we left. When dad read the letter, dad, when you read it, did you, <laughs> you know, in our family, we kind of joke about, you know, dad's a crier and, you know, he gets choked up and doggone it. If I didn't inherit that gene, cause I can't even read a story to Daniel without getting choked up and he makes fun of me. So dad, did you like, did you choke up when you read the letter? Did you just read it emotionless uh, and businesslike? Like what were your emotions as you, as you well, read the letter to the elders? I knew, uh, it was kind of like doing a funeral for a loved one or a friend there. And it kind of sounds strange to say that, but uh, I just had to tell myself, you know, get a hold of yourself, get a hold of your emotions and just read it and get out of there as soon as you can. I didn't know that. We, yeah. Was I sad? Yeah, I was sad. I was very sad. I did, I've been crying a lot. All right. Uh, a lot before I even got there, but, hmm. but uh, I was very sad. I was angry. I was sad. I was also relieved in a way after it was all done, but uh, I just read it slow, distinctly. You, uh, you said a couple of conversations ago that someone in the church said that you just didn't love the people there enough. Uh -huh. uh, you just filled in another blank for us, though. It turns out that was an elder. Right. Yeah. In the meeting when you resigned, an elder said, you just don't love the people here yeah. enough. Did the elder who said that really mean it? Or do you think that was just his emotional reaction? Yeah, I think that was his emotional reaction. And the man's a brilliant man. He's a good friend. Yeah. But, uh, or his way of trying to, you know, process it or change your mind or... Or do you think he really felt that way? He may have felt that way. And if he felt that way, that's, 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 that's fine. I uh, think that's how he saw it. That's how he time. saw it. Hmm. He, he, yeah. he, know, he knew he had been with me on visits. He had seen me in action. He knows he knew. Yeah. He, he may have thought that I, I no longer love the people, but that hmm. that's not, that hasn't changed in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, but everybody's, uh, has a right to their opinions, their feelings. Uh, they can say anything they want to. And that hurt, that hurt deeply. Mm -hmm. But I, I've, I've gotten over it. I know deep down inside that just wasn't true. And like I said, he's, uh, to me, he's a good friend to this day. He's a, he's a good man. He's a solid man. And a uh, very good fellow. But uh, he, he, I, uh... he, he was just known for speaking up. That's what he did. Yeah, I, I know if somebody said something like that to me, it would stop me in my tracks and yeah. it'd be really hard. 
not to say something in response. Um, right. You know, was it, you leave the impression that you didn't respond to that that night. No, um, never have. But you said it hurt you deeply. And I know being cut from the same cloth as you, it would wound me pretty deeply if somebody said that. And right. uh, it would hang over me for a while. So it's probably a good thing mom was there because <laughs> if yeah. mom wasn't there, would you have been more likely to uh, to argue or yeah. say, I'm sorry, I failed you. I've let you down and, you know, slide down that path. It's just like this. I wasn't, I didn't have the energy hmm. or the forethought to be able to answer anything. So yeah. my general policy was what is no matter what's said or done, I will not respond. Yeah, I just won't respond. Now, if they accuse me of being immoral, that'd be a little bit different. But yeah, so they were just they were just expressing their opinions and their feelings, and you know, you yeah. can't you can't argue with that. I'm not going to argue with that. Well, and you have to understand your dad's emotional state. Was shot. That, it was shot. It was shot. Mm. By, by that point, he was he was an empty bucket. There was nothing there to give there was hmm. nothing there to fight with not any, not fighting energy not any kind of energy that's scary. you know yeah and so he not only was he shocked but he didn't respond because he had nothing to respond with yeah so what you're saying is telling me that dad was in a place where a lot of us maybe have never been before i mean i don't know that i've ever been spent to the point that i wouldn't feel something if someone said something like that to me or i wouldn't engage you know and either try to argue or reason or or ask more questions you're saying that um at that point even though that comment was hurtful dad was just you know unable to respond there was nothing that he could pull from within to respond to that so October is one of my favorite months of the year in Ohio because it's gorgeous. Um, Monday night, you walk out of the church building. Did you did you go home? I mean, you lived on the same street as the church, so did you yep. go straight home? Yep. Tell me what happened immediately after you walked out of the, the elders meeting and for the rest I, of the night. I don't know what happened there, but I know we just went home. It's just kind of a quiet very quiet night how did you feel and, and relieved and relieved you know we were we were both relieved that that was over we knew it was going to be a difficult thing and we just went home yeah. relieved and glad yeah. that that part was over i was just wore out emotionally but i was glad that was over mm -hmm. the, the, ner the nerves began to settle down and yeah. I, I knew i had, had done the right thing I. I think when I get through something like that and I feel relieved, my favorite thing to do is to eat <laughs> because <laughs> okay. like I, that you know, my, good. my, my anxiety, my anxiety affects my stomach. So if yeah. I, yeah. if I'm coming up on something like that and I'm especially anxious or my body, or I'm just exhausted, I, you know, I just don't have an appetite. I don't eat. And so right. one of the ways you can tell that I'm relieved is uh, let's go out to dinner. You know, let's, let's get something. I want a big meal. 
you know, because <laughs> it's like I've been holding back from eating for so long. Now I just, yeah. okay, I, you know, I'm not tense anymore. Let's eat and let's process. And that's the way that I react after, you know, I've worked up to something and then I'm through it. So uh, I'm not you. I'm just trying to imagine, you know, going home that night. Did you eat dinner? Did you watch TV? Did you sit and talk about what happened? Did you go straight to bed and just fall asleep, sleep like a baby? <laughs> I, once again, I don't remember. It's been so see, long. Ago. See, so much of that time, your dad just block, block out. He and he was not able to uh, mm. make decisions, and mm. he was in a fog a lot. Oh wow! But, but I mean, we had had dinner before we went. The elders' meetings were always after dinner. We had had mm. dinner. Your dad's way of a lot of times of dealing with things like that is just kind of to retreat, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of withdraw and just, you know, be quiet and be by himself. And yeah, I remember that as being a very quiet evening. I don't know exactly what either one of us did. You called me. We just, we just went home, yeah. just went home, shut the door and just were quiet at home. Yeah. Um... I think you called me that night. I seem to remember getting a phone call. Well, we, from, we from wanted to let you kids know what yep. was going on. So when uh, you didn't hear from any of the elders that night, I guess you didn't get a phone call from any of them. What, when you woke up on Tuesday morning, October four, like what was your first thought when you, when you woke up in the morning? Still had, I still had to preach. I still had to teach. I still had to visit. Mm -hmm. I still had to do everything I had been doing. Mm -hmm. And I started figuring out how I'm going to start weaning myself away from some of these things. Yeah. Um, but they were, they were going to hold me to a 90-day contract. Yeah. Um, well, first question is, when is the first time that you heard from one of the elders? Like, did, wow. did somebody call you and just say, hey, you know, man, that was a heck of a meeting last night, Travis, you know, do you want to oh. talk or? No, 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 one. I think the first one that we heard from was Russ. The first, the first, the, the one we probably heard from was uh, a man that I taught him and his wife and baptized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He became, became a deacon and he became an elder. Yeah. I think he was really shocked uh, because we were, we were close and I had not told him. Mm. He felt he felt like uh, maybe we, I left him high and dry. I see. Which is, which is really not the case. Yeah. But he was, he's the one that responded and he, he responded as a friend. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Um, he, he had never seen anything like this before. He was not raised in the church. Yeah. He didn't, he had never seen anything like this before in his whole life. Seen some pretty weird things. Well, the the thing about being a um a minister in a church when you when you resign i mean first of all it's like family yeah. you know even if you're with a congregation for just a short period of time you can you can start to feel like family right and right. you're god's family right you're not supposed to walk away from your brothers and sisters in christ but if you've been somewhere for 22 years i mean that is when i think of the steel avenue church of christ you know i grew up 
a few hundred miles from my extended family. So everybody at that church is an aunt and an uncle to me and a grandparent and a cousin. Um, I mean, to this day, they really do feel like my family. And so you resign, but it's still a job for you. You're an employee. So you tend to your resignation on a Monday night. And then uh, Wednesday night comes around and you're, you're going to probably teaching Bible class that Wednesday night, I imagine. Right, dad. Yeah. So 48 hours after the resignation, you go to church. Did, you know, like when is the, how did the word get out to the congregation? Did the elders keep it close to the chest until you can make an announcement the next Sunday morning? Did you have to kind of pretend like everything was normal during that entire week? What was going on? Yeah, I think so. We, we just went about our business as normal. We didn't tell anybody. We told nobody. Mm-hmm. And if they told anybody, it might have been their family members, but there was uh, nothing said until the letter was read. And when the letter was read, there was there was um, some reaction, some some sounds. Yeah, you could tell the people the people were shocked. They weren't expecting this. Uh, I was there. Uh, I was there when when the letter was read. You um, you let me know, and I came back from uh, Michigan to be there that Sunday morning when they read the letter. But um, when you went to when you went about your your preacherly business that week before the letter was read, and when you went to church on Wednesday night, all the elders were there, right? Yeah. So you were interacting with them in the in the lobby, and you were, you know, I, I don't know if you had some elders scheduled to go on visits with you that week or, or what, but I, I mean, was it awkward? Uh, was it cold? Was it like, what were the feelings when you were crossing paths with these, with these elders and friends, you know, in the days after your resignation? Well, the the brethren didn't know, but the elders did. The the brethren were fine because they didn't know, but the elders were not mean. They were not vengeful. They were not uh, critical. They were not verbal. Um, I don't remember any one of them coming to me and talking to me about any of this. I don't remember. They may have. Um, that was a long, that's almost 20 years ago, but uh, uh, I don't, they didn't go, they didn't go out of their, I don't remember them going out of their way to come talk to me or come see me or ask me any questions or make any comments. I just, I just don't remember that. And they may have, um, I think they were satisfied with the work that I had done. I don't think they were angry with me and I never took advantage of the elders, never took advantage of the church. There, there was just nothing really negative there, but the, 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 the silence and the awkwardness of it was in the air. It was the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Only a handful of us knew about it. But uh, no, there was, there was no, there's, there were no hard feelings. There was no, nothing, nothing said or done towards me that was harsh or unkind. See, I beg to disagree a little bit. You can do that. I think there, I think there were some hard feelings, but they mm-hmm. were not expressed. Yeah. So, Dad, how was your work different that week? And we're still talking about the week before 
the resignation was announced to the church. Like, so you went back to work the Tuesday after you resigned and you said it yourself, you had visits to make and Bible studies to do and classes to teach and sermons to prepare. So was there any change in how you felt as you went about that work after just, you knew that you had resigned? It was just harder to do that. Really? Yeah. Why was it harder? Uh, because the passion had gone out. Hmm. Um, I had a strong desire for that church to grow and, and to develop into something wonderful. Uh, and um, it, I knew that I wasn't going to be a part of that if it ever were to come anyway. And I, I just wasn't going to be a part of it anymore. So, you know, I, I couldn't turn my back on people and I couldn't ignore them and I could not neglect them. But I knew that I was pretty much done there and I needed to start, I needed to start wrapping up things. And mm -hmm. so I just worked my way through the week. I, I did the, I probably did the minimum of visits I needed to do and the minimum of phone calls I needed to do. And uh, I had to fulfill obligations so far as any Bible studies I had scheduled or ministries like, uh, or classes that I taught or ministries like, financial peace or whatever whatever else we had going on then so i just kind of i just kind of you know I I, I I i tried not to have these <clears throat> have this decision affect the quality of the class or the visits or the sermons i was preaching <clears throat> i had to preach another 12 or 13 weeks that's a long time especially when you yeah. preach twice on sunday morning and once on sunday night yeah i couldn't have that flying by so i know mom has said that you were you were exhausted and and exhausted just means it sounds to me like you were clinically depressed because depressed people they they lose every trace of motivation like and, yeah. and energy and it sounds like you were there but yeah. um like how strong was the resentment within you and i don't think we've really talked about that but you know one of the things i've noticed from myself having been in the nonprofit world and being in the business of helping people and coming alongside people and, and trying to, to love people is that the harder you work on to, for people, right. Yeah. The more you give to people, right. Because you really want to, and you really care about them. Right. Um, you can reach a point where you start to get exhausted and you start to get burned out and and then resentment starts to creep in yeah because i've i have needed to go into counseling myself more than once in my adult life because of the resentment that started to grow within me because yeah. i loved people so much yeah right yeah and i worked very hard for them but i was beginning to resent the people that i loved <laughs> because yeah. i was getting so so tired yeah. so um, what you just said a minute ago, I heard echoes of resentment in there. So how strong was the resentment in you at this point? And I want you to not be afraid to, to admit it because I'm, I just, I kind of gave you an out there. It's that when you love people a lot, it's easy to resent them after a while yeah. uh, because you love them and because you work hard for them. But if you're not taking care of yourself and you're not setting good boundaries, that's where you can start to resent them. It's not fair to them right? Right. Um, you are in control of it, but that's how we grow and learn, right? We recognize it. So 
Um, had, were you, were you resentful at this point or had you moved past resentment to like bitterness, uh, or were you past bitterness to just absolute, you know, apathy? <laughs> None of the, the steps I give are, you know, when we moved there, we were excited. That was mm -hmm. 1981. And we, we worked many, many years. Things went great. Everything was wonderful. And something happened. And then I became a little disillusioned. And uh, I was going this way and it seemed like the leadership was going in a different direction. But anyway, we may have been going in the same direction. But anyway, I got a little disillusioned, a little disappointed, a little discouraged. And then I, I got a little angry. And I would, I'd come home from meetings just in, in, in sheer anger. Mm -hmm. And then this, this anger um, became just apathy. Mm -hmm towards the whole thing. There were days I just said, I don't, I just don't care. I mean, why should I, why should I work so cotton pig and hard if nobody else is going to mm -hmm. give 1% of what I give? And of course, that may be the wrong attitude to have, but you know, I just wonder why people did not seem to care about this, care about the church as much as I did. And so I've become very apathetic and then I just, I just fizzled, but the anger came back uh, not the day I resigned, not the week I resigned, not even a month after I resigned or even three months after I resigned. It became, it, it, it started coming. Your mother would say it started coming. But after we left, I was, I was all, I was angry. I, I've been angry for years. Hmm. And little by little, I learned that, um, they weren't the problem. I was the problem. The way I thought was a problem. The way I processed was a problem. The way I handled issues was a, was a problem. I, I repressed all this stuff. I, I pressed it down. I did not verbalize it. I did not. I wasn't. I wasn't honest with myself. I wasn't honest with them. So I've learned. It took me about ten years to finally figure out that my anger should not be towards the leadership there as much as should it should be me because I made bad choices. And so I have forgiven them for whatever that's worth but I had to forgive myself to get back on board. Hold on. Let me, let me say goodbye to my wife. Sure. Are y'all leaving? We're taking off in like oh. five minutes. I just didn't want to interrupt. Oh, I need to put gas in the vendor for you. I'm taking my car. Hey, be I careful. Guess go. Okay. Good. All right. Love you. See, that's as real as it gets right there. Um, Mom, I've, I've watched you. Um, I've watched your facial expressions while dad is talking. So I really want to give you a chance to comment on this. What do you want me to comment on? I, I've just, I've watched your facial expressions while dad was, was talking. And uh, you're here for a reason to give your perspective on things. So what's your perspective? Well, um, I think, I mean, everything that your dad said was true. Mm -hmm. He, the anger in him had been building over years um, <clears throat> because he had a dream for that congregation. Uh, and it was really interesting because I, I can't tell you how many times over the years he would talk about the potential 
in that mm. congregation to the point that I got sick of hearing about the potential in mm. that congregation. You know, he just, he just, he just had this vision of what that church could be and it wasn't coming. And he felt that the leadership was part of that. Hmm. So he was angry about that. And, and like he said, he repressed it. He repressed it for years. And, and I think anger that is repressed always manifests itself in some way hmm. at some point. And for him, it manifested itself in burnout. Hmm. Um, the, the week after he resigned, before the letter was read to the church, he did do his job. And he did his job up until the day we left. He did his job, but there was a difference because mm. he knew the end was coming. He knew he could make it to the end. And he immediately, because you know how your dad's always planning things way ahead. He immediately started plan his exit plan. You know, what, you know how he's going to wrap this up and how many more weeks he's going to do this study and who he might get to take this class. And, you know, he immediately started working on that. And I really believe that's what kept him going until the last day which mm -hmm. was the exit plan. And he knew there was going to be an end. Yeah. So uh, an uncomfortable question, dad, mainly for you, uh, you said something a couple of minutes ago about, you know, you felt like the, the congregation could become something wonderful. And mom, you said that you got tired of dad talking about the potential. How do you think members of the Steel Avenue Church of Christ who were there during those 22 years and maybe listening to this conversation right now, how do you think they would feel about you saying that they had potential and could be wonderful? I think they feel about it. Yeah. I, uh, I, don't, I don't have a clue. I think someone would say, but if they, if they knew what potential I had in mind, as many times I would even express that from the pulpit, I think they'd understand. And they'd probably say, you're right, but it didn't happen. Uh, a lot, a lot of church members. Uh, this is just true across the board. Don't think, in, don't they don't think uh, in the, the way that I think. I think in the way of goals, and vision, and mission. They don't think that way. They think about coming to church, sitting in a pew, and singing and visiting. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's that's. And and some of them come with the attitude, "I'm not going to rock the boat." I don't, I don't want to change the thing. I just want to want it to stay the way things are, the way things have been in the past. So you, get, you, have, you have all these different reactions, but um, uh, I don't even know. I don't even know if I've even shared that dream with anybody there. I don't even know if I'd share the dream with the elders there. But uh, we, I share lots of ideas and some, some possible goals we could have had. Mm. But it just seemed that we tended to minor in the majors and major in the minors. Which is, um, I would say, what the Church of Christ does. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I may get in trouble for that, but that's what you do in the Church of Christ. You get in trouble because our culture has been to major in the minors. 
and minor in the majors. So I don't know if that is a, a particularly good description of that congregation as much as it is our entire fellowship and the way that we operate as a fellowship. Um, I think it's interesting that you were there for 22 and a half years and you said it's possible you never actually shared your dream with the congregation. Why is that? I didn't know that, probably didn't know how to do it. What I, what I did do is I tried to teach them what the Bible taught on this, 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 and this, mm -hmm. and this. I never, I never painted a picture of what it would actually look like. Uh, and, and that's, you know, they just didn't catch the, catch the vision. I'm not very good at describing things anyway, but that could, that could be, the, I, I did it a different way, maybe in a more passive way than a proactive way. Um, do you think this is, um, do you think that one of the big differences between you and most ministers in your position is is the length of time that you were with the steel avenue church of christ and what i mean is i feel like a lot of people who get into ministry they do catch a vision and they do want they have a really strong desire for the people in their congregation to get caught up in that vision um and it it may it may be a vision from from the lord right um if you love the people in your congregation and i know you love the people in that congregation and i i believe ministers do um you want them to experience the wonder right you want them to experience um their their own potential you want that for them uh, because you love them but in my experience being around ministers my whole life uh, there's almost always a disconnect or a tension between what the minister imagines is possible, right? And what the congregation imagines is possible or wants for itself. So my question about, you know, is the only difference between you and all, all the other ministers out there who catch a vision and they wish for their congregation to be caught up in, in it with them is that most ministers don't last for more than three years at their congregations before they're moving on to a new one. You were with your congregation for 22 and a half years. So you had a lot longer to think about that vision with your congregation there right. and to live in that tension between what you believed was possible because of your uh, tuning into the spirit of, of the Lord and what the congregation believed was possible for itself or wanted for itself. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of something else. Um, I tried to, I tried to live a certain example of before the people too. I, I preached on this. I did not call it a vision, but I did just preach, you know, if we do it God's way, we'll grow. Um, uh, but also try to live an example. One, one big failure that I've had then that I've learned from that is I was, I was really into, I was really into numbers and I'm ashamed to even say that, but I just got as many studies as I could and did as many studies as I could and baptized as many people as I could. And I grew the church numerically, 
but one big failure I had in my ministry, just about everywhere I went, I was not busy making disciples. I was busy making members, which is really Jesus' job. He makes members when we are born again. He makes us members of his family, of his kingdom, of his church. And if I had been spending the same amount of energy on making disciples, I, I may still be there today. The church would be, I think, probably be bigger and stronger than it, than it was when I left. But I, I'll never know that. But uh, I wasn't perfect, still not perfect, still learning. You said something a few weeks ago, Dad, in one of these conversations about there came a day you'd always kept a journal from when you started at Westside Church of Christ in 1975. You kept a journal of the number of people who attended every Sunday, I think. And you, yeah. you, it was a it was a book of numbers. Yeah. And you said you kept it from the start of your ministry until you reached a point in Ashland where you yeah. stopped doing it one day. Yeah. Right. So you just brought up numbers again. And yeah. you said something interesting about if you had focused on making disciples, you may still be there, which you wanted to retire from there. That was something yeah. that you and mom decided you wanted to do early on in your, your time at Ashland. So it sounds to me like the, the thing that may have undone you is you were, it was a matter of measurement. You were measuring the wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. And that measuring the wrong things may have, <laughs> may have, I wish people could see this. Every time we have these conversations, the camera is on mom and dad is off camera. I can, I can see dad's shoulder and I'm always like, why is it that dad has the camera on mom? Dad's doing most of the talking, but all I can, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to make eye contact by making eye contact with dad's right arm because that's all I can see. But, but mom just told him to move the camera. So now I see them both, but the, um, but back to the measuring thing, uh -huh. if you were measuring something different, you just said it yourself. If I was measuring something different, I might still be there. So the question is, you know, you had a vision and I have no doubt, and I hope nobody listening to this has any doubt at all that your vision for the Steel Avenue Church of Christ came out of your, your genuine love for the people there. Um, people who were there know that you loved them. Uh, doesn't mean that you weren't imperfect and immature and growing as a human being and as a minister. But um, is it possible that your vision for the church was not the Lord's vision for the church? Oh, it's very possible. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I also was presumptuous in thinking I would be the one hmm. that brought the vision to fruition. Mm -hmm. Think about it. I, you know, every preacher has his, has his limitations. He has his specialties. He has his boundaries. And I may, have, I may have taken that church as far as I could have taken it. And I did not even recognize that. And it, it may have been time. In fact, it was, it was really time. We, 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 at least I did. I, I wanted to stay until I got your baby sister out of college. Mm -hmm. And I, I should have resigned sooner. Uh, but I, I had, there was a feeling from time to time of I've done everything I know to do here. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, this thing's getting big and I'm having a hard time keeping up with it and maybe time to move on. And like you said, my vision may not, probably wasn't the brethren's vision. It, it probably wasn't the, the Lord's vision. That's, that's the important thing right there. Yeah. One of the things that I've thought about a lot since we started recording this podcast um, is when, when we had the, the episode where we talked about when you first moved to Ashland and I asked you, what was the difference between the day you showed up in Ashland and the day you showed up in Akron and the day you showed up in Cadiz, right? And you described how when you got to Akron, uh, the church there had hired a moving company for y'all. And so the moving truck pulled up at the house and there was one guy from the church who was there to unlock the house and let you in. And, um, you know, and then the movers moved your stuff in and, you know, there you were. And, um, and then you described when you moved to Ashland and I was there, so I can remember it. It seemed like the whole church came out to, to greet you. So, you know, there were people inside painting the house and getting it ready. And there were folks there to unload the U-Haul and there were people with food and, and, so you, you talked about how much energy there was among the people in that church and uh, how they just worked. We talked a lot about that in the first few episodes about Ashley. You just said the people worked. And the people that you talked about when we had those conversations were not people who were doing church work. That's one of the things that I, I noted. They were people who were doing things like uh, fixing stuff. <laughs> So you talked about, you, you talked about Kenny Smith a lot, who was a member there, right? And how much he helped you. And he was the kind of guy that helped people work on their houses. So you just, you talked a whole lot about how people just did whatever they could, but it wasn't necessarily church work. You know, it was inviting people over for lunch, right? How somebody would come to visit the church and they may be a stranger, and yet someone in the church would say, why don't you come over to our house for lunch today, right? That's not a, a church thing. That's a come over and let me cook you lunch. And that made, a, that made an impression on me during those conversations. Yeah. And so one of the, the takeaways for me as we've talked about the Steel Avenue Church of Christ is that uh, I have most of my life being a church person thought a lot about programs, right? Um, in my own congregation right now, there's a lot of emphasis on, pro we need a program for this. We need a program for that. Um, you know, our worship minister is leaving. We need to hire a new full-time worship minister. We need a youth minister. We need a, you know, program, program, program. And that's because this has become our paradigm for what makes a, a growing church is a church with a lot of programs and people leading those programs. And from our conversations about the steel Avenue church of Christ, I don't see a lot of programs. I just see a lot of people doing regular people stuff. And the more I think about it, the more I can see how Jesus Christ sanctifies and uses the normal life stuff that we do to build a community. 
of faith, hope, and love. And to me, that's the most impressive thing about the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. I don't know if you realize this, but I've been doing a little bit of research, but Church of Christ congregations in the United States uh, shrank by about 10% during the period of time that you were at Steel Avenue Church of Christ. So if Steel Avenue Church of Christ had been a normal Church of Christ congregation during that time, instead of being 350 members when you left, it would have been 135 because you would have lost 10% of your members. So 150 when you came minus 10%, you would have been at 135. You more than doubled in size. So that is really, really remarkable because you, you, um, you busted a national trend. For all I know, Steel Avenue Church of Christ may have been one of the, one of the congregations that grew the most in the country in that period of time. And the thing I keep coming back to is, well, there's Travis Irwin who's doing Bible studies, but what you've emphasized in our conversations is how regular people in that church were just doing regular things for other regular people. And so people came in, they were strangers and you studied the Bible with them and you baptized them, but they made friends and they found something to do. And somebody did something for them and the church the church grew. So that was an unplanned uh, tangent that I just went off on there. But I, uh, from, from listening to you talk about your time there, I keep thinking when, when you said something about could have been wonderful, had a lot of potential. I look at that church and I say, that's a wonderful church. Yeah. It's a, that's a wonder right there because church yeah. of Christ congregations were dying in yeah. the 1980s and 90s. And that yeah. church was growing. Um, that church didn't have potential. That church was was meeting its potential compared to other congregations. And um, you were a big part of that. But so were the people just living their, their ordinary lives. So I guess the point I'm making, and I it's this isn't my podcast. I'm not supposed to be making points, but you know, having this conversation today made me think about how um, ministers, we do succumb to the temptation to measure. And if we measure the wrong things, and if we, we, we're, we're the kind of people that get into ministry because we have visions, but if we don't have the Lord's vision, right? You know, maybe the Lord's vision is regular people doing regular people stuff, right? And, and growing. Yeah. We can burn ourselves out as ministers and we can do harm to our congregations. And um, I think, I think that's a lesson that I've, I've been learning during these conversations that you and I have been having as you talk yeah. about your time there. Well, a lot of those Sorry. lessons I've learned since 19, I've, a lot of those lessons I've learned since 2008 when I became an involvement minister. Yeah. Yeah. Where people use their gifts and their talents and passions and, personalities just, just so, common everyday stuff as we call, we call so, it common, not common yeah i mean i really have learned a lot from this podcast about how the christ sanctifies and uses ordinary people doing ordinary people stuff right and the more right. i think about it the church as it was born in the first century and through the ages, um, it really is just uh, it's it's regular life rearranged to
to care for the most vulnerable people, right? It's, 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 um, we tend to think about what happens in worship in the assembly is what church is about. But I really have learned from this conversation, why did Steel Avenue Church of Christ grow? I think it's not because of what happened in worship, because you know, our worship stayed the same for 22 and a half years, you know, right? We sang the same songs, same order, same song leaders. Most churches today, it's like, you got to change the worship, get some new songs, paint the sanctuary, whatever. I'm like, that church bucked all the national trends and grew with the same worship, same songs, same preacher for 22 years. Most people would say a church like that shouldn't grow. Well, why did it grow? Well, there was all the work that you did, Dad, to study the Bible with people. But I think the most important work that happened was regular people allowing them their, their regular lives to take on new meaning and purpose in Christ and to share their lives with other people. And it made the church grow. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is because of what you just said a minute ago. If I had made disciples, I might still be there. If I had measured something different, that might've made the difference in my life. And it might've made a difference in that congregation's life. And I, I just, I felt like a light bulb went on when you said that for me. And that's what we're really mining for in these conversations are what lessons can we learn from your experience? Um, all of us who are listening to this can learn from you and then apply those lessons. Mom, you've had to listen to me and dad go on and on here for a few minutes. So I don't want to ignore your wisdom. <laughs> I don't have anything to add. Oh, okay. No. Well, um, we went a little long here, so let me ask one more question. Um, I was there the morning you resigned, Dad. I don't remember. I don't have a lot of memory of it. I just remember uh, being there. I remember sitting, um, sitting on I think the front pew or pretty close to the front um, of the auditorium, up on the on the left side, near where you had the elders meeting. I feel like I was sitting there, and that. Um, um, I th Michelle was in Loughborough, wasn't she? Did she come home? Yeah, yeah that's right. <clears throat> she yeah. didn't come home. Um, and I, I remember hearing gasps and shuffling from the audience, you know, when, as I expected, would happen. Uh, just real briefly, you, you preached that morning, and then I assume you did what you always did after the invitation, so after the final song you walk down the center aisle and to the door to shake hands as people went out man what was it like shaking hands that morning uh i think it was a i think it was a good experience i don't remember a lot that was said um some people were sorry a lot of people said they were sorry a lot of people said i hope you change your mind um i hope you reconsider we're gonna miss you I said, well, I'm here for another 90 days. You won't miss me for the next 90 days. Uh, I tell you, whenever you resign like that, you find out who really, really supports you and loves you and appreciates you. Um, some people maybe, maybe won't say nice things because of their personality, but for the most part, when I resigned from Ashland, on that Sunday, and then later when we walked away on January 4th in the, in the new year, I knew who my 
true supporters and backers were. Hmm. And uh, that's not to say they should have had a divided allegiance between me and Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, here are the people that, here are the people that have supported me all along. Mm-hmm. Some of them, some of them, uh, you know, I wasn't surprised. Some of them, I was a little surprised. But it, it was, it was gratifying to hear some really nice things. And that's, that's not why I resigned. Yeah. Anyway. We've got the dog on here now. Yeah. Lacey, yeah. yeah. Okay. She's trying to get in the room. Yeah. She can't get in. Well, it's this is a story that nobody's interested in. Every time she barks at somebody passing by the house. She knows that it drives us crazy. So we're, hush, Lacey, hush. We are always trying to be, get her to be quiet. So now she's gotten to where she'll bark at the people passing on the street, and then she'll come find me wherever I am. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, as if, hey, scold me. You know, I've done wrong. So the door's closed <laughs> and she can't get to me right now. Um, but uh, thanks for thanks for sharing today. Uh, this is, uh, you know... I feel like this is an awkward conversation to have, um, not because you resigned, because people resign all the time. Right. Uh, it's pretty normal. And right. ministers resign from churches all the time. That's pretty oh, normal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, when you've been with a congregation as long as, as you were at Steel Avenue Church of Christ and you have those relationships with people, you love them, you love family. But, you know, the more you love somebody and the closer you are to them, uh, the harder it is to break up, the harder it is yeah. to re uh, refigure the relationship, you know, and set new boundaries. It's tough. And you had a lot of, you had a lot of feelings, um, that are, are hard to talk about and hard to share. And so, uh, thanks for sharing them today. I just feel like there's a lot to learn from it. And, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, uh, next time. And then, uh, what I want to do after that is just kind of do a, a wrap up on the entire Ashland experience. And I have something kind of special planned for that. We'll see if it works out. So okay. anything that we didn't talk about that you really want to get in here? Last word? Not really. No. Okay. Thank you for joining dad, mom, and I for this conversation. I hope you learned something that is helping you become a more healthy, mature, and wise church leader or church member. In the next episode, dad and mom will talk about the last three months of dad's ministry with the Steel Avenue Church of Christ after 22 years. How did dad feel about the way he prepared the congregation for his departure? And how did he say goodbye? If you find these conversations with dad uh, useful and valuable, I recommend you pick up a copy of dad's book, We Are God's Masterpiece, which is now on sale at amazon.com. You'll find it in the show notes. All of the lessons that dad learned about congregational health and the growth of individual Christians in the church comes together in this book, which dad wrote as a guide for church leaders and church members to discover their spiritual gifts and put them to work together to grow and strengthen the body of Christ. I highly recommend it. I also ask that if you're getting some value from this podcast, uh, that you would share it with an elder, a fellow church member, a minister, a pastor, uh, someone you think 
would benefit from the lessons that dad learned through his long career in congregational ministry. And while you're at it, please leave a good rating and review on whatever podcast service you use. Finally, please keep dad and mom in your prayers. Uh, As of January 24, just two days before we recorded this episode, dad found out that chemotherapy is no longer keeping his cancer from growing. Um, So chemo is no longer working, in other words. He's going to be trying a different kind of treatment starting pretty soon. And he and mom could really use your prayers for courage, hope, and a spirit of joy, peace, and things. Uh, not to mention healing. So thank you for your prayers on behalf of dad and our entire family. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Until next time, grace and peace.